This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, on Saturday, the DUP held their annual conference. It hadn't been held for a couple of years because of COVID. Jeffrey Donaldson, the DUP leader, addressed the conference, and he was trenchant. He was applauded warmly. Uh, Afterwards, he got a standing ovation for several minutes. Uh, In essence, his message was that the DUP will not re-enter the power-sharing assembly at Stormont unless its demands regarding the Northern Ireland Protocol are met. And, of course, there has been meetings over the last week between the Irish government and British government and the DUP are watching this, and the Irish government also talking, of course, to the EU. And the real negotiations here are, strictly speaking, between the European Union and the British government. We're joined now by Newton Emerson, a journalist and columnist with the Irish Times every Thursday and with the Sunday Times and the Irish News as well. Newton, thank you very much for joining us. I watched Jeffy Donaldson's speech. It was well-delivered, trenchant, and it had the smack of determination and purpose about it. And from what I could see, it went down very well with his audience. Well, he didn't really have much choice but to, to take that line. The, the DUP has just this one button. It's got the press. It's boycott of Stormont. And so obviously at this stage, he just has to jump up and down on it one more time because things are coming to a head now. Apologies for mixing all these metaphors. The deal is clearly coming. There's clearly a danger of it being done over the DUP's head between the UK and the EU. Uh, I mean, as you pointed out, it'll be done over their heads anyway, but with with, with less reference to what the DUP needs. And so n- nerves are frayed within the DUP and unionism, especially over the, the, the vastly quickly improving mood between Brussels, Dublin and London. They can uh, they can smell the betrayal coming, to use the, the, the common yes. cliche. And, uh, and of course, they're, they're well used to it. So it doesn't stop them walking into it again and again. So... Uh, <sighs> Yeah, you know, I think that uh, away from the lines uh, in the speech, there is a genuine problem building over whether uh, Sir Geoffrey is going to be able to go back into Stormont, as he's always intended to do when this deal emerges. I think that 
things have become so fraught within unionism and he's painted himself into such a tight corner that even a pretty good deal, the best likely outcome, is going to be impossible for him to sell to his own party. Uh, his party is frightened of the unionist electorate. He's oversold his boycotts to the unionist voters. In fact, unionist voters support it way more than way more than I think that he wanted them to. Yes. And uh, and so I I strongly suspect that there's going to be a deal and the DUP is just going to keep sitting on its hands. Yes, and just to get a bit of the history here for our listeners down here, because we don't pay as much attention in, to the detail of the protocol or indeed Northern Irish politics. How nice um, for you. Well, <laughs> I, I, I think it's something we should do, but we have one-track minds in, in many ways. I mean, Boris Johnson lied to the Irish government. He lied to everybody, really. He also sold the DUP down the river, didn't he? Uh-huh, Maybe yeah. he had no intention of honouring his agreement with the EU. But in that agreement, he did sell the DUP down the river. Yes, as did the European Research Group of hardline Tory yes. Brexiteers, which the DUP just will not roll out of bed from. They got into bed with them and they just won't get out, uh, even though it's the ERG in charge of the Northern Ireland office now, former ERG members and chairs. Yes. And Steve are, Baker, and Steve the, Baker yes. one of the leading lights in that group. Yes, but also Chris Heaton-Harris, the new Secretary of State, another former chair of the ERG. Um, yes. And... Um, also, giving very um, conciliatory mute music out to Dublin, a good friend of Simon Coveney, as he's very keen to point out. Yes. So the DUP thought they'd got their, uh, they got their, uh, you know, they got the band back together again when Liz Truss appointed the yes. new Northern Ireland office ministers, and it's just the same, just the same thing is happening. It's about to happen to them again, quite clearly. So uh, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're 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 in an absolute panic. They can see this protocol bill which Liz Truss devised as foreign secretary. Um, is also, uh, I mean, it's not a, a practical negotiating strategy. It can't get through Westminster in time. It can't possibly be enacted in full. So That's right. It's stuck in the Lords at the moment. And even many Tories believe it's far too hardline. Can I just check another detail with you, an important one? The previous Prime Minister, before uh, Boris did a deal, Yes, her deal was more favourable to the DUP, as I understand it. Or, or was it? She said that no Tory government could countenance a border in the Irish Sea. Yes. Well, now, there's um, the, the jury is a bit out on that. It's a bit difficult to judge whether Theresa May's deal was worse. She had a backstop, and uh, Boris Johnson effectively turned it into a front stop. Right. She, she also would have kept the UK and the customs union, which would have uh, reduced the you know sea border checks. But we have a... Uh, a trade and cooperation agreement with the EU now, which removes that anyway. I think the key difference is that Theresa May was a genuine universe, uh, a, a unionist, yes. truly, truly committed to the precious union, an expression that is now uh, that is now used to mock unionists. Uh, but uh, you know, it, it was a genuine uh, a genuine opinion of hers. Whereas uh, I don't think Boris Johnson really gave it and uh, really cared about it at all, any more than he cared about anything apart from himself. Uh, and, and as with Liz Truss, well, nobody really knows where she stands. She's pretty; her views are pretty gnomic. They appear to to shift with the wind. And yes. I think that that uh, the predicament that she's in generally means if she can get a protocol deal signed off, yes, and normalise relations with the EU, she'll just bank it and move on. Now, 
one of the core objections the DUP have, the, the core objection, is that this new arrangement between the EU and the UK, the Brexit deal, and the compromises that are in there in terms of borders and um, customs and so on, it fundamentally changes the relationship between the North and Britain. Mm -hmm. And in so doing, it's a breach of the Good Friday Agreement because the Good Friday Agreement said any change had to be agreed by all the parties. Mm -hmm. That's right, isn't it? As I, as I read this, this does fundamentally change the relationship between the UK and the North. I, it's it's too uh, it, it it's too technical. It's not yes. clear and not clear enough to make that a slam dunk argument. And right. unionists could can see that by turning it around. After Brexit, nationalists claimed that Brexit itself breached the Good Friday Agreement, and yes. that appeared to be a slam dunk argument until people looked closely at the text and discovered that in fact nothing about Brexit actually breaches the Good Friday Agreement. There's a mention of our common EU membership in the preamble to the agreement, but that's not binding. And that's really the only thing in the agreement that's that's not completely incidental to EU membership. So, uh, and, and, and the hard border as well, of course. This, I think this is what really aggravates unionists, is the, the idea uh, that uh, the Irish diplomacy has, has convinced the world that the agreement bans a hard border or any border infrastructure, but the agreement doesn't say anything about the nature of the border at all. Zero. It doesn't even right. mention security on the border specifically. It just says it should be normalized everywhere in accordance with threat. So uh, there's been so right. So so there, there's nothing in there's nothing about Brexit breaches the agreement. And the flip side of that is that nothing in the protocol uh, definitively breaches the agreement either. For example, it clearly changes our trading relationship with Britain, but trade is not devolved. That's right. That's Westminster's responsibility. So uh, and and it's uh, the Good Friday Agreement said, for example, that the constitutional position of Northern Ireland. Uh, Required the requires the consent of its of its people, but uh, that only applies to United Ireland. So right. there you've got that. Then there's a the cross community uh, thing for controversial issues. Yes, there must be there must be cross community consent for controversial votes, but only for devolved vote, devolved subjects. So, right. so basically, you what you've got is you've got a classic situation of a uh, a fudge, a compromise, a deadlock. Both sides are going to have to take a hit and agree to swallow something they don't like. Unionism more so, but then it's unionism's fault. It voted for this. Yes. Now it's it's twenty five years this year since the Good Friday Agreement, and at the heart of the Good Friday Agreement was the notion of constructive ambiguity. Am I right there? Would yes, and, that, and that's where we're heading with this. We don't have a legal yeah. slam dunk argument here. We've got political argument. Yeah, and constructive ambiguity is something we down here are pretty good at. <laughs> yes, but unfor unfortunately, the EU is crap at it. Absolutely can't do it really? at all. Can't yeah. do it at all. The whole, the whole point of the EU is that, is that it's, it's rules only. Particularly in relation to the single market. Yes, and of course, uh, this is doubly frustrating as well, because although that's the EU's position, of course, when you look around the edge of the EU, it has fudged the rules for almost every external country. Yes. But, uh, but, it can't, but the more it does that, the less it can admit it. But can I ask you about this rather than assert it? Constructive ambiguity is not something that is, comes easily to Protestants. 
And I don't mean that in a sectarian way. As you should know, I am actually, I admire them greatly, the, 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 the people of Northern Ireland. And I don't think they should be shoehorned into United Ireland either. And I don't think we should have a border poll right now either. But it does seem to me that it's an alien concept to a certain kind of unionist. Uh, that is an interesting point. I think is there. Uh, what are the cultural? Dis- is there is there distinct cultural differences well, on this between well, uh, I mean, constructive ambiguity. I think the constructive ambiguity. Uh, I mean, if you look at the Catholic, <laughs> the Catholic Church, for God's sake. I, I mean, I think I I I think that I I think I would not pin uh, I'd not pin the unionist problem with the protocol on uh, on on that because. Right. Uh, because the issues that unions had with constructive ambiguity around, say, for example, um, prisoner releases and the fudging of uh, of prosecutions for troubles yes. cri- for troubles crimes, those are you know those are pretty profound uh, moral questions, and uh, I think that that really that, that anyone would have had an, uh, that m- many more people had objections to unions, nationalists, uh, you know. And everyone in between had deep difficulty with that. I don't think it's too difficult to understand why fudging sovereignty would come, would be an issue for anyone in Northern Ireland. After all, it was the effect on the sovereignty and constitutional question of the border that caused nationalism to be so outraged by Brexit. Yes. Um, no, I think that um, I think that the, the fundamental problem we've got here with constructive ambiguity is in Brussels, not in Belfast. Right. Um, they're going to have a, a bit, for example, they managed to mislead everyone. Uh, just before the protocol was signed, that they would take a risk-based assessment of inspections. And everybody thought, great, because, you know, there's hardly any risk to the single market of stuff being, food being smuggled in from Britain via Belfast. You're not going going to bring your dodgy ham in through six different ferry routes to get it back to France. That way it's absurd. And we thought, well, hooray, you know, problem solved. And then they turned around after the ink was dry and said, well, you know, we, we, we of course consider everything to be at risk. Every single thing is at risk, yes. so we need to we need to uh, inspect or regulate it all. So th- th- this is where they're coming from. Um, I, I mean, if I, if I was going to make any plea to anyone in the in the republic, it wouldn't be to you know to try try and understand Protestant legalism better. But European legalism, European legalism is an yes. obstruction to to us all. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. 
Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now, at the moment, the weapon that the DUP are brandishing is a refusal to allow the assembly to sit and work and, and govern. Isn't yeah. that, they can just refuse. Yes. And that effectively means no government and the, the assembly and Stormont just sits there. What do you think it would take for the DUP to change its mind? And the other part of that question is, can Liz Truss uh, and the Tories force it down their throat? Right, that's a, that's a multi-part question. Um, yes. the, there, is a, there is a realistic deal in prospect that should, in theory, be politically sellable by the DUP to the unionist population. Checks, border checks, sea border checks can be reduced way down. Uh, the, the idea of a green channel model can be sold or spun where the DUP can say there are no inspections on goods within the UK. We're only checking goods that might leak out off the UK via Northern Ireland. It's a yep. bit, a bit Jesuitical, as Ian Paisley might have said, but you know, because you're still, <laughs> you're still, you're still inspecting things to make sure they don't need to be inspected in the green lane, if you see what I mean. It's like, like I do, the, yeah. occasion, the occasional check and then nothing to declare lane, but they could do that. And then on the sovereignty issue, that the, the, the DUP's and unionism's Bigger question. European Court of Justice oversight could be put at one remove uh, rather than having the European Court the final arbiter of everything. That's quite unusual in a trade deal, of course. In fact, it's yes. completely unique. You'd do the standard model in a trade deal where uh, there'd be a unique court appointed by the UK and the EU, a dedicated court for the deal. And any reference to EU law that came up, well, the EU court could have a, an opinion on that that would feed into that upper court. Uh, and then you'd have you'd have standard you have the standard sovereignty arrangement of a trade deal. The EU says the protocol isn't a trade deal. Well, that's sophistry. And they also say, well, we can't have uh, our court at one remove because Northern Ireland is in the EU single market. But so are the EFTA countries, and they have their own court. So there's just there's just no reason not to do that apart from their own obstinacy. And I think that that. That, that, that's a realistic outcome, I think. Now, it's at the absolute upper limit of what the EU has to or could agree, because the EU doesn't really have to agree anything. It can just do what it likes. But I think that is realistic. The, um, but, but, but I think the critical point to make is, even if that happens, I'm losing faith that Sir Geoffrey Donaldson has the gumption to, to go out and sell it. Right. Because on his right is Jim Allister. Yes. And Jim Allister uh, is a committed and unpersuadable figure in all of this. Yes. They can leak votes to him and his party. Yes, and it's very easy to say to just stand on the on the edge there and say, you know, the protocol must be completely removed. Uh, uh, an impossible test for the DUP to deliver. Um, but 
I have no sympathy with Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, as this is, the court, of course, the kind of absolutism that he used against Sir David Trimble when he walked yes. out of the party leadership 20 years ago. So, uh, you know, it's time to put the big boy pants on and stand up for himself and face down the hardliners. If he can't do it, yes. what's, the po- what's the point of him? And if he can't do it, will there be an election anyway? And will there be an electoral uh, price to pay? Because I, I think October 28th is the... A deadline day, and if there is no assembly working at, on that day, the British government is committed to ordering a new election. Yes, within 12 weeks, an election must be arranged by the Secretary of State. That's under a new law brought in in 2020, under yes. the new decade, new approach deal. Um, the government has to keep saying that they'll honour that agreement because or that deadline because it's in legislation. But the fact is that they can change it in a few days if they want to. And that that sort of thing has happened before. My understanding is that the government really doesn't want to have an election. Nobody sees the point of it. One of their concerns is that it might appear to be rewarding the DUP for its intransigence, which would would further aggravate nationalism. Uh, And uh, it would also destroy the SDLP, which uh, isn't really in anybody's interest at the minute apart from Sinn Féin's, I suppose. And, uh, and so they just, they just think, well, what, what on earth is the point of doing this? Even the DUP can't possibly relish an election in the winter, in a field crisis, uh, when it effectively would be asking people to vote for a strategy that had failed and to vote for it again. So another element, and a very big one in all of this, is the continual talk now of a border pole, an agreed Ireland, and that, of course, got another kick forward last week when this um, census showed that there were marginally more Catholics in the North than there were Protestants, although personally I don't think that's really something that we should be concerned about at this point. But the the mood music in the background down here mm-hmm. uh, is all about the border pole and I think Michal Martin is regarded as being weak on this because he wants to talk about a shared island, uh, which I think personally and I'm, uh, is a is is the right way to talk. Uh, but Sinn Féin, as you know, are the largest party in the opinion polls and are likely, uh, but not certain, to form the, the next government or be part of it, the leading part of it. So all of that going on down here wouldn't be helping, would it? Well, um, I mean, it's the DUP. The DUP has cleared the way for that to that to go ahead, for that to be the the, the message coming out of nationalism. Yeah. Obviously, obviously, I mean, if you're not going to to operate Northern Ireland, if you're going to attempt to prove that it that it that it's dysfunctional, yes. then people are going to obviously have that other conversation. It is in its own way completely absurd because there's no prospect of a united Ireland for decades uh, ahead, and uh, I, I really don't see how nationalism can keep talking about this for probably the rest of our lives yes you know it's not it's there's not going to be a united ireland no, for, the, for, it, the, for it, the foreseeable future it's, it's impossible just, to see it fun- <laughs> functioning and it you know it, it wouldn't really be right in my view because you know you have loyalist and unionist people who are part of of the united kingdom and feel themselves to be british and they are british so what are we going to do you know how are we going to corral them into a united Ireland? 
Well, um, not by having this kind of uh, not, quite, I mean, not by having not by having the kind of the kind of terrible atmosphere that we have at the minute. That's for sure. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't think you know anybody uh, can can seriously envisage that there's going to be a rapid move towards a united Ireland under any circumstances, let alone present circumstances. Um, it is. Uh, I think it's it, it's pretty clear that if the DUP wants. Uh, an alternative message or alternative political mood to develop, they need to get back to Stormont and start creating one. So, uh, you know, the, the, I think that this well well understood across the union's constituency, this is yet another thing that the DUP has unleashed upon us or that yes. it has responsibility for causing. Now, that doesn't mean that the boycott isn't popular and the polls continue to show that um, the unionist electorate thinks there's no point going back to Stormont until this is fixed. There probably isn't much of a point because it, it would be very fragile in the, in the meantime. Um, I think that the question so is... Would, the question you, would you say, Emerson, that it hadn't occurred to me that the EU were being, you know, difficult? I mean, the last I, I heard from Sefcovic, the the person who is negotiating this, was that they just check a few cars a day. And they were going to be very willing to, this is Mara Sefcovich, the, the bureaucrat charged with uh, finding a solution to this. Yes, he, he, said was, he, could, he said he could get the checks down to two lorries a day, and they're currently about 20 a day. But you see, it's, yeah. it, although the inspections are politically neuralgic for unionism, for business, they're not the problem. The problem is the paperwork. Yes. And, and he's not talking about reducing the paperwork. So everyone right. will, fill, will fill in their paperwork, but will hardly check it. And the business community up here will went well. That, well, that's that doesn't solve our problem at all. Right. Uh, also, of course, okay. Stefkovic has no mandate from the member states or the Commission to change his negotiating position, uh, and uh, is just. A, Generally, hasn't even really uh, at this point pinned down the difference between the negotiating he claims to want and his insistence that the EU will not renegotiate. Uh, I think that there, a lot of this mood music is uh, is a bit deceptive. Is it a huge factor, at, or has it been a huge factor over the last several years that the relationship between Britain since Brexit really and the EU is so bad that a goodwill could get over a lot of this stuff. Well, obviously, it's it's better to have a good relationship than a bad one, and it would be absolutely crucial to have trust and a good working relationship to to manage this enormously complicated arrangement that we're going to we're, we're going to have to figure out at some stage. But uh, that I think um, another fundamental problem is the EU is not capable of that kind of flexibility on something as technical and administrative as seaborder regulations. It's not prepared to make the political compromises necessary for a tiny region in a in a third country. Yes. Um. Or, you know, it's got political internal political problems within its own member states. What happens if French farmers turned around and say one packet of rancid ham has leaked in yes. from Belfast? We're going to block Dover. You know what? <laughs> yes. What happens then? And uh, and so, you know that, that, that this is a problem. And I think that perhaps uh, a problem we could address within Ireland is uh, Europhilia, the, the ridiculous Europhilia of uh, of Ireland. Yes. Part, large parts of Northern Ireland, large parts of British culture as well. Um, it, it's simply infantile and and counterproductive to keep portraying the EU 
as uh, as as not problematic in these negotiations as well. It right. ha- it, ha- it also, like Boris Johnson, has lied about the Good Friday Agreement, has lied about what the protocol is and what it intends to do with it, and continues, as far as I can see, to lie about its intentions in negotiations. And part of the reason it thinks it can get away with that is because uh, the Irish political establishment continues to kiss its ring in the most obsequious fashion ab- yes. ab- imaginable. Somebody uh, you would you would hope would need to pull it up on it. And ridiculously, I think the likeliest Irish government to do that in the end is one led by Sinn Féin. Right. Um, it's, it's funny, really. Well, I can't, um, I can't see, I can't see uh, Leo Varadkar doing it. Can you? No, I, I, you see, we worship the European Union. And as I'm sure you know. You do now. You didn't 10 years ago, but you do now. And what seems to, to have changed is that this is part and parcel of, um, of hostility to Britain. Well, the hostility here, I suppose, is, well, it's, I think hostility to Britain is universal at the moment. Uh, they're going out of their way to make enemies. But Brexit... Brexit has changed things in the mindsets, hasn't it? Of course, yes, it has. In so many ways. And Brexit explains the ill will between the UK, of which the North is part, and and all of... the Europe, of Europe, it does, it does, including, it, but, including uh, this republic. It does, but it doesn't explain the intensity of the ill will. That, that's what I feel. I think that um, the, amount, the amount of emotional um, uh, investment in inspecting pork pies in Warren Point is not explicable in, in purely yes. technical terms. I think that there was a there was a deep, deep reservoir of of hostility there that this is uncorked. The other question I want to ask you about is the effect on Northern Irish business. We are told down here that it is the the position Theresa May had negotiated, for example, would have given Northern Ireland's business the best of both worlds. Uh, was that true? No, uh, perhaps. In your view? No, perhaps we have. We might have had an option for the least worst of both worlds. But the EU itself, and Michel Barnier pointed this out, it was quite determined that Northern Ireland would not have advantages in the single market. And why should it? We're not really in the single market. We're not even a you know we're not a member state. So yes. uh, there might have been some access, but it would have come at a very high price, very high administrative price, unbearable administrative price. Um, and, and a lot of this was simply uh, dictated by the, uh, the the needs, the pretty marginal needs of uh, dairy processing over the border. Yes, well, uh, they, they they are quite complicated when it comes to milk, for example. They are, but uh, these are, you know, and although that is an important industry to us both, it's yeah, it's only one. And for every other industry, uh, the administrative burdens are, ex- if the protocol was ever properly enforced, would be really onerous for very little return. It's mainly just a cost burden on industry. Now, like any massive change, it's good for some businesses and bad for others. And it doesn't affect services, for example, which aren't really related to this at all. They're cut off mm. from Europe, although they were never really that... They had problems trading with Europe in the, in the meantime. It's very complicated. There are winners and losers. And I think that that's, that's a, a, a complexity that the political debate can't digest. It has to be presented as a win or a loss, depending on which side you're on. Right, just a final question, Emerson, about uh, the DUP and its refusal to compromise on this, or its apparent refusal, should we say. Uh-huh. Can 
the situation continue as it is, that they say, no, you have no assembly and everyone is stuck. No, and that's why the, the talk about the 25th anniversary next April is becoming, I think, quite critical. Yeah. Uh, the Good Friday Agreement requires itself to be regularly reviewed and its structures reforms. That's actually yes. the, 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 the most undelivered part of the agreement are, are those reforms which are meant to have rolled on very quickly within the first three years. 20 yes. years on, we still haven't reduced these restrictions. And uh, of course, you, you can't really reform power sharing without the agreement of the two largest unionist and nationalist parties. But uh, we've now had Sinn Féin bring it down for three years, the DUP uh, attempting to do the same. Uh, the, the electorate does not consider this legitimate, in my opinion, and I think that we need to we need to make a as Alliance has proposed a very simple change. Both those two parties still get offered the top two spots, but if they don't take it, then others form a, others form a government without them. Okay, Newton Emerson uh, in Belfast, we're really grateful to you. Newton writes uh, for the Irish Times every Thursday, and it's really high quality journalism, and for the Sunday Times and the Irish News, and um, we're very grateful. To Newton Emerson, and we hope we'll hear from him again. Uh, we're grateful to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.